All right, let's get started. Afternoon, sir. Um, I guess I'll start with the date. Today is January 15th, mm -hmm. 2022. Mm -hmm. And we're back for another episode. And right before we started recording, we were just talking about our bet from the last episode we recorded that came right down to the wire. You want to give us a little uh, overview? Yeah. So as you know, year end was pretty high volatility going to year end. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty at that time. So we, we weren't even, we, we weren't sure what's going to happen with the bet because it, it was so close. Um, so the market, um, had a local bottom on the 20th uh, where S&P went down to 45.68 mm -hmm. and since then it's, it's, it rallied for a couple of days to 20, for a week to 27th um, so, it, so it closed at 47.91 on the 27th yeah uh, right after Christmas and then it was looking like it, um, it could, could go straight up but then it plateaued uh, yeah. uh, switching around um, uh, between 4700 and 4800 uh, for a while. More accurately, 4750 and 4800 for a while. Yeah. And yeah, uh, they didn't quite get there. Had, had a dip from the from 29th to 31st to 4766. So it was it was really close. It was, it was really close to the end of the year. Yeah, I we picked the uh, level really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'll say 4800 was a very very fair level for. Yeah. For, for a bet and it, it, one thing that's interesting um about this is with the rally we not only saw market rally we also saw it's really interesting it's also how it rally right we saw signs of a growth rally from the 20th to the end of the year growth rally with the with the cyclical sectors and with value factor etc right. going into uh, rallying into year end and big tech growth selling off. So that's quite interesting to me mm -hmm. um, as the characteristics of how it happened because I personally expected cyclicals and values not do well until say like the end of January, right? Okay. And the reason being is to me, I felt that Omicron case is rising and that would put enough of a dent in growth expectation. Yeah. Economic growth expectations. For sure. Um, to delay the cyclical um, rally. But it seems that the market is looking beyond the state of Omicron to the hopefully final reopening. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and it seems the market is not sensitive to it as before. It, it, it acts, reacts quicker because recall how slow the market acted for the first reopening. And yeah. then for Delta, and then we have now, which is much faster than what Delta was. Mm -hmm. And so that, that is quite interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess um, with every successive round of lockdowns, mm -hmm. aggregate demand has been impacted less and less. So I guess mm -hmm. that, that, that's what yeah, the market took it as. Economic, yeah. So business, so business sentiment. Um, so basically, saw a chart where some employed business sentiment with the Oxford Trinity Index, right? COVID right. in this, which is basically like the Bible pod, uh, which is a metro policy response. And yeah. the correlation between the, between the two has gotten less and less, less and less negative. Right. right? Uh, as in previously, when the stringent index was high, we became very strict policy 
from governments. Um, well, what we saw was, was business sentiment decreasing quite a bit, but now yeah. it, it's barely affected. And I think that's one of the reasons. And second, the market has seen this movie before, right? Um, for, markets are for discounting mechanism. So markets looking forward to the reopening when it finally happens for the final time. Yeah. And I think those two are the um, biggest reasons why we saw um, a different response than what maybe what I anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess maybe that's a good starting place. Mm-hmm. Um, so let, let's start there. Let's talk a little bit about growth, maybe, and then mm-hmm. review inflation that we talked about last time. And then mm-hmm. we'll head into the main topic of QE and QT. Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. So on on the growth note, what do you think going forward? How do you think you think Omicron goes away completely, COVID goes away completely, and we go back to high growth, or or what do you think? So for me, again, I'm not very well versed in in traditional economics, so. So uh, for, 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 let's say if I were to predict a growth percentage, right? I wouldn't be able to do that. But in general terms, I expect a pretty healthy uh, reopening mm-hmm. um, economically because yes, like even though market, the market ha- and have been having the best couple of years in history, I think I'm pretty sure in history, Right, um, and we and we see a lot of fiscal easing from the government to drive off economic growth in the past few years. The virus still, I think, has an impact on how most of the economy behaves. Right, mm-hmm. it's still not like full reopening levels right. of growth. Um, so I I, I think. It, once growth happens, we would do is get a bit of a lift from the for economic readings. Well, how that impacts the market, I don't think it impacts the market that much because I think that's been pretty built into market expectations. Yeah. Um. So versus expectations wise, the risks to the downside, I think, because market expecting a very strong growth rebound, which is why we're seeing this. But again, this is just growth fact, but that's not related to um, to uh, to the monetary policy, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. Um, as regards to Omicron, whether I think this will go away for, for real, I, I, I don't. I honestly do not know. Um, I mean, people thought Delta was the last was the last draw, right? Yeah, very um, true. But I, I would say, in terms of the impact, I think it would get less and less because. It's, it's how because viruses don't want to kill your host, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the most optimal path for the vi- most optimal situation for virus to be is to be to, to have not very strong symptoms, but to spread very quickly, right? Because they, then they will reproduce extremely quick. Without so, like your host. right? Yeah, like Omicron. And so, so we, we'll reach a state where where either it's it's just Omicron or a new variant that's even more infectious, but even less toxic, right? <laughs> and eventually, it would just be something that people just live with, like the flu, right? Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. But on on the growth note, I definitely agree that things are risks are tilted to the downside, and I think mm-hmm. 
um, that's given market pricing, but also I think some of the fundamental measures just mm-hmm. point to weaker growth over a longer period of time. So like we're definitely poised for strong growth in relative terms in the, maybe mm-hmm. this year and next year because demand is so strong, right? Like demand is mm-hmm. above pre-pandemic levels. People yep. just want to spend money right now. Um, but I think some of the drivers of long-term growth from a more traditional economic sense are much weaker than they were pre-pandemic. So things like your labor market, like the mm-hmm. level of employment is lower than where a pre-pandemic trend would have put it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so you have that labor productivity isn't growing that much. And a mm-hmm. lot of the investment that we've seen throughout the last couple of years is duplication in some sense, right? Like mm-hmm. if you buy a bunch of equipment as a company for your employees to work at home, that doesn't mm-hmm. create excess capacity in the economy. It does so, not, yeah. Yeah, so it, that's kind of a more theoretical potential output kind of thing, but I think that does drive growth over the longer term. So I think that's some of the reason why we haven't seen long-end rates sell off that much. Like the end point of policy right now for the Fed is priced at like 160 basis points. Mm-hmm. Um, and they reached two and a half last cycle, but I think because of those weaker inputs to potential growth, um, some of the longer term factors will be weighing down on how far the Fed can get before uh, the economy starts seeing st- signs of stress. You know, you know what I mean? And I agree from an economic data perspective, it has, it has, growth has slowed. Are you familiar with the OECD leading indicators, Arjun? I am not. So OECD, uh, leading indicators are basically a set of uh, so it's called the composite leading indicator um, from the OECD it's basically an index of economic indicators that show um, where we are in the business cycle right mm-hmm. um, so that if it's above 100 it's strong if it's below 100 it's weak right um, that's uh, so it's the, the, actual, the actual composition of it is actually quite sophisticated. Uh, with we, uh, so it's not just a mix of signals, like dead scores, like evenly weighted. Like it's not like, you know, the usual way that, you know, you see research being done. It's, it's quite, quite sophisticated mm-hmm. in that it, it uses a lot of, you use signal processing, um, Okay. To to extract the signals, uh, right. which I believe they use uh, the oh, I can't think of the signal off the top. Think of the filter off the top of my head. Like common HP. No, no HP filter. Oh, okay. So it okay. uses HP filter to extract the signal, and it it is is Um, and so it, it actually is quite good. Um, yeah. Again, how how leading it how leading it is for issues. Well, I mean, it's leading versus the actual read, right, mm-hmm. of the economic data. But versus the market expectations, I think it's a more of a now cast. It's, right. it's actually been quite and it's actually quite good um, if you look at it from this perspective of using that to define growth regimes. Right. Um, and so the official explanation for what, again, the official explanation for the CLI, the composite leading indicators are, is the OECD system of composite leading indicators is designed to provide early signals of turning points in the business cycle. Fluctuations in output gap, um, i.e. fluctuations of economic activity around long-term potential. This approach focusing on turning points, peaks and troughs results in the CLIs that 
provide qualitative rather than quantitative information on short-term economic movements, mm-hmm. right? And, and what we see from the OEC indicators is that it's been, it's still above 100, it's still healthy, but mm-hmm. it's turned slightly downwards a bit, which indicates to me, slower growth potential, yeah. right? Yeah, so, so the trajectory so the going change, forward isn't so, as high. Yeah, the rate of change has slowed. Yeah. So the, the change of change has turned negative, but like uh, on a level is still above 100. So it's been quite healthy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess that segues nicely to inflation because mm-hmm. if we're seeing fundamental inputs to growth not being that good, but demand is so high, uh, that means that theoretically we should have um, increasing output gaps which should mm-hmm. put upward pressure on inflation and make it less transitory than I would have posited in our last podcast, right? So, so what do you think about um, inflation now? Let's do a quick review. So I, I still think it's persistent. Um, even though, yes, the, we, we see that some supply chain issues begin to ease up a bit, right? Um, but I think the demand side, as you said before, has gotten stronger and stronger, right? Mm-hmm. And swings above recovery levels. Uh, what was interesting now is if you look at um, a measure of inflation called price stats, uh, which is for those who are unaware of what price stats is, is basically um, CPI by measured using online prices. So not just online prices on online retailers like Amazon, right? There's right. also online prices that people list online. For example, uh, let's say you go and buy bricks from not the Home Depot, but like a, maybe like a wholesaler, right? Right to, I don't know, do some landscaping. The wholesaler, if they have a website, your prices will be listed online. And so you also grab those prices. Let's say you want to get shipping. Well, FedEx online prices count. So it's not just buying, it's not online prices, not just limited to Amazon, right? Like it's, it's businesses that publish their prices online. Mm-hmm. So it uses, uses that the same, and the same methodology as CPI to construct a nowcast of CPI. And for that, yeah, like the, the change of change has been slowing on, um, on inflation in that regard. But here's the thing, that's mostly due to energy and transportation slowing down, right? Like okay. energy and transportation is turning. So energy and transportation, which has to do with supply chain is getting cheaper. Mm-hmm. And, but if we see food and beverages, well, one of the main consumer uses yeah. of, well, of wealth is uh, has been accelerating, right? Um, and so, well, so I, I think it'll be. So I think in terms of the, in terms of the impact of supply chain, yeah, like I think supply chain will lessen the upward pressure of inflation, but overall, I, I expect it to remain about three percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Um, sorry, continue. I, I definitely think that's a good point, and. Um, if we do include supply chain, even I think that current Omicron developments do extend it a little bit longer than mm-hmm. I would have said last time, mm-hmm. because I mean, the, the U S hasn't really locked down that much, but Europe, Canada, a lot of places have, right. So that does worsen your issues because your capacity is reduced, especially for manufacturing. Right. Mm-hmm. And also from much from another perspective, uh, what we saw since the death of the pandemic that I think it's a complete game changer for the real economy. It's labor. 
-hmm. So the power dynamic between labor's suppliers and labor and labor demand. So between workers and the employers have completely changed. What we had before was 20 years of Goldilocks, which is decent growth, virtually no inflation, right? For the last mm -hmm. decade. Right. That, that has shifted because the power dynamic of workers has been different, right? People, people are turning down jobs for higher wages, like, right? Um, people mm -hmm. know because people have realized there's a labor shortage. So, so employers have to compete for labor, right? Instead of you're lucky to have a job is no, you're lucky to hire somebody. Yeah, for sure. Right? And with that change, it's a complete game changer in how the labor market functions. It's not just a wages thing, right? Employer, employer, employees are demanding more flexibility, right? Right. Um, work from home or, or benefits or whatever, or better working environment. A lot of that has hidden implications, I think, on productivity, right? Because, I mean, there will be hidden costs upon productivity on that. <laughs> That's in addition to increasing demand for wages. Yeah. So, so I think labor, the shift in labor market is something that's absolutely critical to how we need to think about uh, inflation. Because in the past, we see productivity growing at, at, a, at an exponential pace while workers not reaping any benefits, mm -hmm. while workers are demanding the benefits back. And, right. that, and, and that shift, is, I think, provides a permanent upward pressure on inflation going forward. I do get that. But the, so the one thing that I've been thinking about a lot in regards to wages is typically for wages to have a sustained inflation effect, you need to mm -hmm. have second and third round effects. So um, you demand higher wages than mm -hmm. employers not willing to reduce margins or not being able to afford higher mm -hmm. wages, raise their prices, which causes labor then to demand even higher wages which mm -hmm. gets passed through to cost and so on and so forth, right? That's your wage it's, price spiral. Well, not, not just that. You also have the demand side, right? People have money, they go spend. Yeah, true. Um, but, I, I, sorry, continue. But I, I would say without the commensurate increase in prices, you won't have as much of a demand for higher wages from the initial shock, right? So you get higher mm -hmm. wages, you definitely spend more. But if, if prices for the consumer don't rise as much, then you won't want to demand another wage uh, increase the next year with the same magnitude, right? I, I personally would not agree for a couple of reasons. A, um, the living, the middle class has been squeezed out for decades already. Um, the cost of affording middle class lifestyle has increased so much that there is a lot of room for it to rebound, right? From the wages perspective. True. Right? Like people, um, people need to pay their student loans, right? Rent is getting higher and higher. Right. Um, and yeah, so there's just a lot of, I would say, lost wages to make up for. That yeah, that that's that's very true. But then mm -hmm. also that that by definition is temporary, right? Because if wages rise enough to the point that you're able to afford those things, or the imbalances decrease, then you should see a cooling of that um, self-inflicting spiral, right? Yeah, but I I think that increase is a is a decade long cycle rather than something that is dissolved in a year or two. True. Okay. Um, but back to the original point, the, the one thing that's been interesting to me is that corporate, corporate profits are, you know, at the highest level margins mm -hmm. are, are incredibly high. Yeah. So it's weird to me that 
that real wages are still going down. Uh, sorry, yeah. So re real wages are still going down. Prices are rising, and wages are not rising enough. But corporate profits are so high. I mean, mm -hmm. theoretically, in such an environment, companies should be able to afford this without rising prices, you know, as much as they have. So real wages should be increasing in in such a labor uh, shortage environment. But that hasn't really been happening, which is yep. interesting. Well, I, I think this is a result of how uh, how finance works, right? Like how how Wall Street, how how analysts like us think. Because let's put it this way: let's say a company's margins at thirty five, right, percent, right. or whatever, making widgets. So what? So next year, let's say they maintain thirty five percent over the the next ten years, right? Right. Investors with. Let's just say thirty-five is a fair margin. Uh, companies are, company is doing well, but then uh, investors are still growth seeking, right? Eventually, mm -hmm. you reach a point where the widget company can only get so big because there's only so much demand for widgets, right? And so, so eventually, you reach a point where earnings, right, was was slow. Even though earnings are good, let's say earning, let's say the company earns, I don't know, five. Uh, Five EPS, right? Mm -hmm. um, just pulling a random numbers out of my ass. Five EPS, yeah. and let's say I maintain the five EPS for the next ten years, uh, it'll be heavily punished by investors right. as a non-growing company because the growth would be zero. For sure. But then the EPS has to keep growing. How, how do you keep growing EPS at a rate above the above the economy, right? When um, it's, it's difficult to maintain on the long run. It's unrealistic to expect it, but investors do expect it. Investors in general expect exponential growth systems, right? Right. So let, let, let's say, for example, what would be a healthy economic, what, what would be a healthy growth in GDP to you? 2% maybe? I don't know. Uh, higher than that. A little yeah, bit. Yeah, but, but I'm seeing an example, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's say 2%. It's the low end of, the, of healthy. Yeah. Right. Um, applying a 2%, even just 2%, that's exponential growth, right? Right. So, so humans are expecting exponential growth systems from that I think is unrealistic to expect over a very long course of time. And it doesn't matter. And people don't care about base effects as much, right? It's like last year, for example, uh, you, 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 you grew your EPS from five to seven, right? And next year it grew from seven to eight, seven to eight right? That's yeah. still bad because yeah. your growth has slowed. So it's a, it's a function of how investors think. Investors think there's a growth percentage and change and change percentage. And I think that's what forces comp companies to keep up um, to, to not absorb the margins, right? Yeah, I, I get that. Corporate but... executives are rewarded on based off of their earnings performances. Earnings performances are all based on percentages. For sure. But theoretically, in, in the aggregate with enough competition, you should see them have to absorb that because you're removing some of your demand effectively by raising prices so much, right? Mm -hmm. um, if your prices outpace wage gains, then more less consumers will be able to afford what you're mm. offering. So mm -hmm. your aggregate demand curve, you, you go lower on that on that curve, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's just, it seems weird to me that they're not absorbing it as they theoretically should be. But I yeah. completely see your point. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying on on a, on a macro level. That's one thing that I've been, uh, I, 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 I've been uh, confused by as well, right? Mm -hmm. 
so, that's, so that'll, that'll be interesting to see going forward because that could certainly um, make an inflation more persistent like you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so on the macro, you, you expect the, the, uh, the effects of competition versus margins to play out. Right. But it's weird I haven't seen that. Like, I yeah. agree with you. It's, it's weird that it hasn't happened. Yeah. So um, if, if that dynamic persists, then inflation definitely persists, irrespective of some of the other supply chain factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think you see a lot of that in, in housing too, right? And, and why house, and why rent has gotten so expensive? Yeah, because so because of demand, people people just hire, hire demand for uh, housing, mm-hmm. and, and also a lot. One thing we're missing from before is China, right? Like China is no longer like a cheap goods, uh, like a very cheap goods place, right? Like that's true. That's Bangladesh. That's Vietnam. And but the thing, problem with Bangladesh and Vietnam is such is it doesn't have the same scale that China does. Right? Like yeah. China just produces stuff faster and with much larger larger quantities. Right. Let me give a small anecdote uh, as an example. So recently, I bought uh, jerseys for my uh, favorite football team, the New, the New England Patriots. Mm-hmm. So I bought knockoff jerseys from China. Right. Mm-hmm. If you, let's say you go buy knockoff jerseys shipped from China you expect them to be made in China, right? Right. Wrong, because, because, Chinese, because Chinese workers are too expensive for, for these to be profitable <laughs> anymore. And, and, and because these are not machine-made, right? These are hand-stitched jerseys. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think these are machine-made. I, I, think, I think a lot of stitching for textiles is still done by hand, I'm pretty sure, like on the mass production scale, right? Because these are, these are not printed jerseys. These are stitched. Right. So as in like the, the, the name plates and jersey numbers are all stitched on. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, so I think there's a lot of human labor involved. So it's made in, I believe, Guatemala. Yeah, it's made in Guatemala. And, but it's created by a Chinese company because I ordered it from a, from a website. That's right. a Chinese knockoff goods, yeah. right? So what these companies do is, is that they just sell their, they just produce more than their, the order right? and sell the, the rest to, uh, to these knockoff retailers, right? right? For a bit of extra money. Yeah. Um, and so it's probably made by the same factory or the same company that makes the real thing. They just, you know, uh, pocket it a bit. Right, for sure. Uh, and yeah, so it's too expensive for, China, for Chinese uh, companies to make. And that's why you see China growing a lot in Africa. So why does China want to grow in Africa? Right? What's there in Africa? Or what's right. in Africa? is what as far as China doesn't have anymore. Right? Two, I mean, besides natural resources. Yeah, One's natural labor. resources, two is labor. So companies opening up shop in Africa because right. it's cheap. Right? And the, the companies that's opening up in in, in Bangladesh, in a lot of Pakistan, wherever, like Bangladesh, sometimes they're Chinese companies, man, mm-hmm. that's, that's doing this. Uh, and that's why, and, and so that's one thing that's a big game changer is China is the longer to absorb the world's inflation like before. For sure. And, and, you, and you see that, especially with how producer inflation that's growing has changed in China versus consumer inflation, right? Um, so in China, China has an inflation problem. It does. But what's the inflation problem on? Producer, yeah. right? And consumer inflation has been doing fine because food, I think, has been doing fine in China, food prices. Right. But last I checked, that is. I haven't checked in a while. <laughs> and, and, and why is producer inflation? And what's happening to producer inflation? Well, Chinese companies are raising their prices on their American customers. Right. Right. And shipping costs is all being absorbed by American companies. It's the same with the tariffs. And so 
But here's because here's the thing: there's no choice but to order from the Chinese companies because the, because the same because Vietnam would not be able to produce it. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. I, I mean, that's what happened with COVID. They said, I said the U.S. With, with, with tariffs and with trade restrictions, wanted to incentivize companies to shift their, their supply chains to Vietnam. But the problem was that Vietnam, once they got hit by COVID, could not produce it. Yeah. Well, even before COVID, they, they can't produce it. So it just doesn't have the infrastructure to do it. Right. But China has a very healthy rail infrastructure, has a decently educated workforce, right? Mm-hmm. Um, has, has very efficient supply chains. Did you, the sure size of the country. For example, you go to Shenzhen, if, if you want to do anything hardware related, like if you're, if you're not a software startup, a software tech startup, let's say you're a hardware tech startup making, I don't know, um, a new a new electronic device or whatever, right? right? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you do in Shenzhen, you know why? Because the parts, the engineers, the prototyping and the production can all be done in this one city. Yeah, it's incredible. Right? Yeah, so, like, so, so, you don't, you don't, so you can literally go to any of the thousands of stores and buy basically any electronic component you need. Mm-hmm. And there, it's all right there in the city. It's convenient for, for production. So there are a lot of cities like that in China where it's convenient. Yeah, and and so yeah, like it's it's no China's no longer doing this, this lowest value goods, and and that's I think is a big shift uh, for right. inflation going forward as well. Yeah, for sure. So that'll be interesting to watch. Um, mm-hmm. So especially I guess- since especially since like the Chinese policy right now is wants to focus more on moving up the supply chain, right? Right. Yeah, definitely. All right, so now let's pivot a little bit into uh, QE QT. Mm-hmm. Um, do we want to give a quick outline of what that is? Sure. Do you want to do that, Arjun? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So quantitative easing is when um, the central bank wants to increase the liquidity of the system. They want people, people to have more cash-like assets to be able to execute transactions, right? Um, so what they do is they'll go into the market and they'll purchase government bonds from whichever hedge fund or a broker, whoever, a dealer, whatever, right? Um, and that cash has to be, because they buy it and, and give them cash, that cash has to be put somewhere. So the hedge fund or whatever puts that at their dealer and that increases the level of reserves in the system. And given a higher level of reserves, you should be able to facilitate transactions more easily. So in an environment like COVID where transaction um, are harder to do because of whatever reason, like the, the market's crashing, people have less liquidity, um, people are demanding more liquidity, um, and you don't trust your counterparties as much, you need higher liquidity to facilitate transactions between them so that the economy can keep running, right? So theoretically, QE should increase um, companies' abilities to do that, or at least within the financial system, and that should translate to the real economy. Now, the flip side of that is QT, where they have all these bonds amassed on their balance sheet, the central banks that is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they want financial conditions to tighten because if there's too much liquidity, it becomes too easy to facilitate transactions, which partly contributes to inflation, right? Um, mm. Things can be done too cheaply, so they just do them and prices rise. Um, so when we're at a point where they don't wanna be as accommodative, they wanna start being a little more restrictive so that inflation doesn't get out of hand, they will let all these bonds mature on their balance sheet and they won't reinvest the proceeds. So that means that um, before in the QE environment, right? Let's say you're holding your balance sheet constant um, for as a central bank, you're holding your balance sheet constant. 
Um, if you have a bond maturing off your balance sheet, you take the proceeds, let's say a hundred bucks, and at the next government bond auction, you go reinvest that hundred dollars. So that means that any dealer, hedge fund, the public doesn't have to go spend their hundred dollars on buying bonds from the government. Now, if you let the bond mature and you don't reinvest the proceeds, that means that the hundred dollars that the government has to refinance, that's absorbed by the public, removing liquidity from the systems or draining reserves. That means that your transaction friction will increase a little bit and conditions will tighten because it's more, there's less liquidity, so it's more difficult to execute transactions. And that should again flow through to the real economy where this lower level of liquidity should restrict the amount of transactions and thereby cool inflation. Um, did I miss anything or is that? No, I, I think that's a pretty good overview. Right. Um, so let's start with thoughts on QT. Do you, or sorry, QE. Um, what do you think it has contributed? What are your thoughts on it in general? I think what's most mainly contributed to is a historic asset price asset price inflation, right? Like um, if you look at a 60-40 portfolio, right? 60, mm-hmm. Both the equity side and the bond side is, is uh, overvalued versus right. historical standards, right? Um, equity PE speaks for itself, but then if you also look at the, um, the risk premium from bonds, right? Yeah. It's basically nothing. Yeah. Um, and with, and with historically low rates. So a 64-40 portfolio has been overvalued, and that's the classic example of um, asset price inflation. Right. And, uh, and real, real economy-wise, I don't think QE has done much, um, but it has contributed to S&P being at 4,800, well, almost 4,800 at one point uh, in, in last year. Well, uh, just before Trump, but it, it was in the 2000s, <laughs> right? Yeah, definitely. Um, and so that, that, that's, I think, that's the biggest change, uh, biggest impact of, uh, of QE. And also, not just increased asset price valuations, also decreased volatility, right? Yeah. Day-to-day volatility. Um, right. by, uh, but by, by, but in, in decreasing day-to-day volatility, what has happened is that he has increased what I like to call fragility, right? The kurtosis of the market. So what the kurtosis is, essentially, the fakeness of the tails, essentially, of the distribution of returns. Mm-hmm. So, so right now, it's okay. So the one standard deviation for equity returns is slightly below 1%, right? Which means that the market is, is let's just say, within 1%, right? I'm shorthanding this. It's not exact 1%. It's like 97 basis points. Mm-hmm. But for S&P, but let, let's say 1% for easy math. If it's, if market is at 1%, that means it's a one standard deviation. So uh, I, I, I mentally forgot, so I'm going to pull up the, the uh, standard deviation percentiles. Okay. Deviation percentiles. So basically, yeah. So what, what's one standard deviation? So one standard deviation is within one standard deviation, change, right? So if it's above one standard deviation, below one standard deviation, that's 68% of returns attributable, right? Right. So that means that is, I believe, uh, so, so anything that's, then, then you, for, for, for the downside of 68%, so we do is one minus six, 68, which is about 30, which is 32, 32 divided by 216. So 16% of days, right? Mm-hmm. You will have 
below one percent. Uh, yeah, one percent. I should see this in days. We'll be above one percent. And so, what is two standing deviation? Two standing is ninety five. So that is, let's just say, so about two point two point one percent of days will right. be will be below two percent. Right. So two percent is actually quite quite a rare event. If you if you think about it, um, from a normal distribution perspective, of course the market is not normally distributed, but assume for 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 this example that it's normally distributed, mm-hmm. right? Then what you have is two percent on days below two two percent, which is uh, which should be about four days a year, right? Well, I mean, clearly it's not been four days a year; it's a lot more than that. Yeah. But then three percent—that's even rare. That's three ten deviations. That is nine uh, nine nine point seven. So that's a three a three a three sigma event is supposed to be a point one percent point one percent event. Yeah. So what does that mean? Uh, 0.1 percent. Uh, for one day, 0.01001. That means 1,000 days. So 1,000 days divided by two. Let's just say how, how many? How many business? 252 uh, business days. Yeah. Yeah. So that is four years. So once in every four years, so we have a three percent. Well, I mean, we, we. I think I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure we saw. We sure that we saw two, three, three sigma moves last year already. Yeah, definitely. Um. So. The, the the so these tail events has gotten has increased in frequency, right? Right, um, and so the market has become more fragile in that even though yes, the day day volatility is lower, the implied volatility is lower, the risk of having a high sigma event has gone up mm-hmm. over time, and that, I think that's a fun, also a function of quantitative easing. All right, um, yeah, I I definitely agree with a lot of that. Um, I think. From my perspective, though, it's slightly helpful. So let's break down the theoretical benefits from it. So there's three things, mm-hmm. at least as outlined by the ECB, but I think these are kind of broadly accepted three measures mm-hmm. or three ways through which QE helps, right? So the first thing is liquidity in a crisis. I think if you're in the middle of like COVID or the financial crisis or whatever, it, it definitely helps with the liquidity problem because it's for companies... For dealers or whoever, if liquidity and not solvency is the issue, then QE definitely helps, right? The -hmm. second thing is the portfolio channel. So that's the risk premiums that you were talking about. Um, And theoretically, it should improve risk-taking, which should encourage more economic activity. Like if you can get funded for a business um, that's risky at a cheaper level, then more people will do it, which raises aggregate economic activity, right? Um, And the third thing is uh, through the signaling channel. So if you want to remain accommodative, um, it's not only doing QE, or it's not even just a level of rates. I mean, it's the the way you signal QE, the way you communicate about QE, right? If you're removing QE from the market, like think about the taper that we had throughout the last few months where the Fed was reducing their purchases, that caused market stress, even though they were still purchasing. Right? So they're still being accommodative. They're just removing, they're just slightly um, uh, right-sizing or reducing the level of purchases, right? So it's accommodative, but slightly less accommodative, but that was taken negatively by the market, right? So that has, the way you do QE has a really important effect on how market participants view policy. And that's kind of ingrained because QE has been going on for over a decade now, right? So let's break down some of the problems which with each of those three things. The first thing is the liquidity issue. Now, 
while it certainly helps um, to Im improve liquidity and improve transactions, and I think to some extent it does help economic activity um, if you if you improve your liquidity in in a tight situation. The problem is is that you're removing good collateral from the market. So if you have a lot of government bonds, you can repo that or you can do secure transactions with the, with the mm. US Treasury bond, right? So it's no issue if you have like really good collateral to get funded. The issue is with a lot of your illiquid or bad collateral, right? So that would be something like um, mortgage-backed securities in the financial crisis, right? So when you're removing good liquidity from the market, um, yes, you're giving them cash, but that cash can't be reused in the way collateral can, right? So if you're a hedge fund, um, you can repo that government bond, which means you sell it to a broker dealer or whoever, and they give you cash. Um, and then the next day you purchase the security back. So you give back the cash plus a little bit of interest and they give you the security back, right? So you're funding yourself for one day. And if you do this over a chain of days, you're funding yourself for multiple days. Um, even in a crisis, you should be able to do this with government bonds because they're very demanded, they're high quality, it's backed by the US government, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, but the thing is, if a hedge fund does that to the dealer, the dealer can also repo that bond to another dealer. This process is called rehypothecation, right? So you can create chains of collateral, which improves liquidity in the entire system. The problem is, is if you have something like an MBS in 2008 or I don't know, like double B rated bonds or something like that, that's more difficult to repo. One, you have shorter collateral chains, so there's less aggregate liquidity. And two, there's problems with default on the bond, higher haircuts. So your transaction friction is higher with lower grade collateral, right? So when you're buying securities in the market, if you're buying government securities, which is what QE is, um, yes, you're improving immediate liquidity, which to some extent helps because they have more actual cash. But that's not necessarily a huge issue for government bonds itself. It's more the bad collateral that's the issue. So the second thing is the portfolio balance channel. I think this is actually, to some extent, helpful um, because if you increase valuations across the spectrum of assets and flatten your risk curve, I think to some extent it does encourage risk taking, which does help activity like we talked about before. But also there's the wealth effect of spending, right? Like if, if consumers see their wealth increasing, then they will spend some more of that money. And we've seen a lot of that through QE. I mean, disposable income's raised, but wealth really went up throughout the pandemic, right? And that's why, partially why we've seen aggregate demand so strong because we're already above pre-pandemic levels of, of growth or output. Um, and then the last thing is the signaling channel. I think this is issue because an issue because of what I talked about slightly and what you really talked about the kurtosis effect, because even if you're still being accommodated by buying bonds, like we saw throughout the last few months, if you reduce the amount of bonds you're purchasing or something like that, it's taken as a signal of tightening, which it really isn't, right? And that causes stress in the market, which we've seen throughout the last few months. I mean, and throughout from September to December, we've seen a bunch of drawdowns, right? There's been at least three. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think those are some of the problems with QE, and I don't know that it's that helpful um, going forward. Yeah, and speaking of liquidity, one of the things that I think is abundantly clear that there's too much liquidity in the system is the fact that bon the banks are having trouble loaning out their, uh, their reserves, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's that banks are literally not taking deposits. 
I mean, not literally not taking, but like, but basically along a pin in personal deposits and for for large corporate deposits, they're actually charging fees, right? Yeah, because they they can't possibly loan it out, like, right? And which just sounds stupid because the bank's mo- entire model is take money, is take deposits, and to generate to make money from loans, right? Exactly. That's the entire business model of bank. So they're starting doing it, then that means that means they they cannot take in that much. Um, they can't generate that many, that many loans, so they yeah. can't take in that much deposits anymore. And yeah, yeah it's just yeah. The, the more liquidity you have, the more the lower your margin is on that on that liquidity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it like it uh, reduces your ROE to actually lend that money out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and, 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 a lot of, and a bunch of liquidity leads to crowding out effect too, right? Where safe assets get crowded out, you go to more risky assets, and risky assets become more valuable. Yeah, and which is a feature in in the situation where investors' sentiment is extremely low, and you want people investing in riskier assets such as uh, high yield bonds, right? But yeah. what's the point where people are just blowing their money on uh, on options and cryptos? Then you have a problem. Yeah, for sure, for sure. There's there's definitely a evaluation problem. Um, so now let's move to QT. QT <laughs> is the part where they want to remove some of that effect and they want to tighten, right? You want people to spend less. Um, and you want there to be less liquidity in the system. So you start letting these bonds roll off. Um, and that should deploy cash that's currently sitting in reserves to these bonds to be held, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have less lending and less transactions. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts on QT? Do you think it's beneficial? Um, do you think it's going to help going forward? I think it should have been done a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but regardless... Um, yeah, I, I think it's beneficial to withdraw liquidity from system, but it's beneficial doesn't mean it will be a smooth ride the entire time, right? Well, what would the QE do? Well, as we talk about, what did, Q, what did QT do? Well, what would QE do? And flip that opposite. That's pretty much what QT is doing, right? It's going to increase volatility, right? Uh-huh. Lower valuations um, and cause investors to move to safe haven assets. That's what I think the ultimate effect. Uh, that's what the market effect of QT is. Um, right. So, 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 so but my theory on what QT would do is say, is that for a long time, um, what we've seen is, for example, like between equity perspective and factory perspective, we see growth performing very well, right, over the last decade in tech. Right. But growth over long periods of time has not. It's not even a real factor because there's no alpha associated to it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not a real alpha factor, and this is something that people have to make up later to explain it. Right. Uh, and if you look at growth, right, um, that is abnormal, and it's been caused by the environment. So what I think QT would do is say it, 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 it's a catalyst for a sh- for system shock that will reprice assets overall. Right. Right. For example, assets. For example, value. Right. The value spread. Which is obviously the the valuations between value and growth has been all time high, right? Uh-huh. So value has been undervalued for a very long time. Um, still at historical lows, even with a good year last year. And with that, it forces a mean reversion, a lot of assets, right? A lot of assets right. that were that have been a long term overpriced, I think will be well priced on the market because what, a system shock would, would cause the market to reprice the assets you hold because it's to sell at, because it would get more volatile. 
And I think that's going to be a major effect of QT. And from an equity perspective, but you can speak to it on the more macro perspective as well. And also another um, implication of QT is that is that we we will see larger, not not standard devi- not standard standard deviation wise, but in terms of absolute percentage wise, bounce of volatility. Right? It's not going to because no, it will wind up the um, the low liquidity cry by, by QE, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. we, we, we might see not we might see equity markets not going up every single year, <laughs> which yeah. is weird to think about, but, but uh, <laughs> it should I, be the case. I, I, I mean, we saw that a bit of 2018, right? So it's yeah. imagine 2018, but happening every few years. Right. I Which think that's the... A more normal or, or, environment. Yeah, yeah, or a few years. Right? Um, so, so, so we will see more of 2018. Uh, yeah. Going forward, it's, it's my first thoughts about QT. I, but I don't think... Well, it, it goes down to how badly does policymakers want to curb inflation? Versus how much they want to curb, how much they want to maintain financial stability. Yeah. Right. Um, QT is like a QT is like a drug. You can't just take it away and not expect people to have withdrawal. Right. So, yeah. Exactly. I think there will be QT withdrawal, and it has been managed. And I think it's healthy. Up, and that and that a good investor can manage around it by looking for assets that are historically undervalued. Right. Mm-hmm. And not taking excess leverage risk and sure. risking blowups by doing those two investing and manager. But my my concern and is that the market will perceive it as a policy error, right? And and the system will quote unquote break. And yeah. in that case, well, you're just screwed as an investor. Yeah, there's no hiding right from that. And and so. I think it's healthy up to the point where the system breaks. Yeah. So I think um, I definitely, I agree with all that. I think to some extent though, um, that level at which the system breaks is perhaps lower, right? Because Hmm. of the fundamental growth issues we talked about earlier. Um, So, and that might actually be contributing to that, that incredibly large spread between growth and value because um, the outlook just doesn't look as strong. Like we're not as in as strong of a position as we were before, despite consumers having all this money and there being all the support in the system. The forward growth outlook isn't particularly high. Um, and when you combine the effect of QT of removing liquidity from the system, um, that might have a double impact of crowding out um, and financial uh, stability concerns increasing. So, so let me break that down. Um, the first thing is the, let's talk about financial stability concerns, right? Um, if you start doing QT in large size, which the Fed has in- indicated they want to do, so they're going to be doing QT concurrent with rate hikes, um, and in larger size than they did in the previous cycle. So QT is going to be bigger than it was in 2017 and 18. Um, mm. that's going to be a lot of liquidity withdrawn from the system very quickly, right? So although we have a lot of excess reserves right now, it'll be draining incredibly quickly. And at the same time, funding will become more expensive because they're gonna be doing rate hikes at the same time. Um, in a situation where investment isn't necessarily as high as it was um, before pre-pandemic. So even with du- the duplication 
of investment that we talked about before, it's still not as high as it was according to pre-pandemic trend, right? So you're going to be restricting some of that investment in the system and restricting some of the transactions, um, making conditions tighter, and you're going to definitely have some sort of impact on growth, right? Um, the second thing is the crowding out effect, because obviously governments have spent so much money um, throughout the pandemic that the level, the stock of government debt is huge, right? So if you do QT in large size, that has to be absorbed. And now you actually have the crowding out effect, um, but on private investment, right? So before we talked about kind of a crowding out of safe assets where investors flock towards risky assets. Um, and although that does create some moral hazard and it's not necessarily optimal, because um, mm -hmm. who knows what the optimal level is, right? Um, now you might have the opposite effect where you're going away from that. And that's definitely detrimental to growth going forward. Um, so if we look at those two effects combined, QT might have an outsized impact on the economy than what we might expect, especially considering that multiple central banks around the world are going to do that. And conditions are more fragile. Economic conditions are more fragile in general. So that's why I think if the market does perceive it to some extent as a policy error, which it doesn't seem to have right now, right? Um, mm. But if it is perceived as a huge policy error, that might be in some ways correct because we might not be able to absorb it. I mean, even last cycle, um, QT concurrent with rate hikes, the Fed was only able to do five hikes um, concurrent with QT before issues started happening, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where QT was being done very gradually. So they started with 6 billion per month and then every three months, they'd increase that by another $6 billion, right? Um, they're likely to do that in much larger size this time. And they're starting at the very beginning of the cycle. And they're probably going to do it faster, right? So that means that instead of increasing your cap every three months, they might do it perhaps every month, right? Mm -hmm. So that would definitely have an impact on how much liquidity is withdrawn from the system. And if the market doesn't have time to absorb that, and you're doing rate hikes at the same time, it may be much before five hikes that you start to see problems. Mm -hmm. so, so that's why I, I don't think QT is necessarily optimal, especially in, in large size. I don't think there is many tangible benefits. Yeah, and especially when we haven't talked about the fact that and, if, and, and what goes hand in hand with QT would be rate hikes, right? Yeah. And, and, and what's the effect of rate hikes? Well, um, well rates get higher. Well, well there was a What's the effect of rates gets higher besides from market perspective? The, the government will have to pay more interest, right? Right, right. And, and so one of the things that's interesting about the U.S. government is that despite the fact that the debt has been increasing exponentially, the debt, interest, debt maintenance has been stable. Why is that? Because rates has gone down right. while debt has increased. Mm -hmm. If... If rates continue to rise, the U.S. government's debt, uh, debt maintenance expenditure will increase. And I think I read somewhere where if it goes up to, like, say, 4%, right, U.S. tenure, uh, the annual debt maintenance cost of uh, the U.S. government will be higher than its pandemic uh, fiscal stimulus every single year. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that'll definitely have a, a crowding out effect. Mm -hmm. um, so that's definitely why I think QT isn't necessarily beneficial to the economy. But from an asset perspective, I think we're talking about how this will cause a repricing. I don't necessarily mm -hmm. think that it'll be higher in terms of growth, right? I think, mm -hmm. sorry, in terms of value, I think you might see growth come down. So the spread will decrease. 
but I, I can't see this being beneficial to any asset class. Well, um, I, I don't know. Uh, investors still have to invest somewhere, right? Investors are not going to just hold money in, in, the, in the bank account, right? They, they're not going to yeah. hold cash the entire time. And I think the, the reinvestment away from growth will go into value. And, and that will cause value, um, value to increase. But that's one of the things that's interesting is that because growth has done so well over the last 10 years, people see growth as safe haven, right? Think about the portfolio managers that, that are in the mid to senior low position. They yeah. see most of their careers invest in tech and they're probably still around because they buy into the tech, right. tech rally, right? Mm-hmm. They're tech enthusiasts. Um, and so as a result, uh, they'll be, they're... A lot, a lot of senior, uh, met to senior level portfolio managers perceive uh, tech as a safe haven, right? So True. that's why we see, see whenever there's a problem, pandemic, tech rallies. But that, that increases um, an asset management Bro. fragility. Yep, uh, 100%. Because yeah, and, you, you might have to liquidate at very low levels if you have some sort of shock, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And so, so what I think will happen is that it's a value will do well, but not it's not direct type up because of this dynamic that, that, that I just talked about, right? And so investors um, can't resist going back to it because that's what they know. It's just like how that's how it took a long time for the market to hate value. Well, it's going to take a long time for markets to love value again. True. Well, the other thing I wanted to talk about is that um, aggregate allocations to equities will have to decrease to some extent if you have such a high level of supply coming into the market, right? Like it has to mm-hmm. be absorbed somehow. And if it can't be absorbed appropriately, then rates will need to reprice higher to the point where they are more attractive, right? Mm-hmm. So because of that, you'll have to put so much more cash into rates. And on top of that, because of the um, interest costs, it'll be in an, an even higher stock of debt coming in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that might itself create a cycle of allocations away from equities, which is poor for returns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I entirely agree that returns are going to be much poorer than it was over the last couple of years. We, we've probably seen the best that the equity market has to offer for, yeah. um, for, the, for the 2020s. Yeah. So from a asset allocation perspective, I can't see anything being particularly good on an outright basis. I think RV is the only way to play things going forward. Yeah. Yeah, in these kind of environments, it's RV. Um, and I feel that some assets that haven't got, okay, even though commodities have had a stellar year last year, right? Yeah. Uh, like I said before, it's just making up for the fact that it's been absolutely terrible. Yeah. <laughs> the decade before. Um, so I think we see uh, those assets getting more attention again. Yeah, for sure. A, a lot of real assets like commodities. Yeah, commodities definitely a good thing. Um, I don't know about real estate because that's something. Yeah, real estate is valuations if it's yeah. already high, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, and it's something that you, you know, policymakers are trying to target, right? Like in exactly. Canada and the U.S., you want to be more restrictive. So that'll be thirty-year rates in the U.S. and five-year rates in mm. Canada. Mm. Um, I think the so I'll talk about rates because because that's what I've been thinking about primarily. Mm. I think um, I think the curve is really the only way to play this going forward. And mm-hmm. from my opinion, it, even though we're already at such flat levels of the curve, I think trading at flatter is the only way to go, particularly in like the short and medium term sector. So you're looking at like 
twos all the way to sevens. I think like twos, fives, two sevens, something like that trades flatter. I think the long end probably has a lot of room to go up because QT puts a lot of upward pressure on duration, right? Because mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of, like the treasury is, is issuing a lot of longer term debt. So there's a lot of supply coming online when they have to refinance that. Um, but I think part of the reason why we trade flatter is because of the growth thing. So you're looking at like five to sevens, your real rates kind of anchors that sector of the curve because growth isn't going to be that great going forward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so real rates kind of stay anchored. If you assume that inflation, even if it stays persistent at 3%, that's not much higher than what we have break-evens at currently. It's at like 250, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if real rates stay anchored, that means that fives and sevens don't go up that much. But if you're looking at the front end of the curve, if you have, um, first of all, a lot of supply. Um, so you have two, I, I, there is a lot of issuance being done at the long end of the curve currently. And QT obviously puts pressure on duration because of risk premiums and bonds, which affects the long end more, but also supply. Um, but if you look at on a sustained basis, there will be a lot of issuance in twos and threes if rates go up because they have to do lowest cost issuance. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and if you have a, a steeper curve or rates that are just more expensive at the long end, then the treasury will shift some of that emission, issuance to twos going forward. That on top of short-term rate expectations going way higher because the Fed's going tighter means that twos will reprice you know, a lot higher going forward. So I think those two combined, maybe over the course of like a year, twos, fives will trade flatter. And, and, and again, I agree, because that's why I look at a lot. Um, I think it's going to return, it would be the return of traditional factor investing. Factors right. are back. Value, yeah. momentum, quality, right? Um, in the intersection of that. So again, speaking just a bit about factors, about how they really work, um, why, why do value momentum get so much attention despite the fact that it is probably the oldest factor investing concept there is? Well, uh, it's because value and momentum are negatively correlated and produce positive alpha. And, over, and, so, and so with that interesting intera- interaction, what you have is that you have that it, it's, it's more, by combining the two, you get a more efficient portfolio, right? With higher sharp ratio in alpha. Because when value performs poorly, momentum performs well. Like that's the sort of the other path. And during the quant crisis of 2017 to 2019, we saw, we didn't see that. And that's why people proclaimed the death of factor investing, uh, of factory investing is back. Right. right. From what we saw last year. Um, I think that'll be trend going forward. And factors exhibit momentum, time series momentum characteristics. As in, but if factors do well, they do better the next year. I'm right. not saying the next period, right? It doesn't yeah. matter the year, but the, the, the next period. Mm-hmm. So what we saw was, I think, the, the, sh- the shake in the system that we needed for value for, for last year and value for, for phenomenally. I think that's what's going to be the catalyst going forward for, for an extended stretch of value outperformance. And so from, from an investing perspective, from an equity investing perspective, um, factor investing would would uh would, would be more beneficial than to do um growth investing like ARC or um or just like simply index, yeah. yeah, right, right, or or, or simply an index, which is yeah. buying pretty much the highest cap. Yeah, I, I think um one other point to mention is that trend following or outright time series momentum. So not on the factors, but like on equities themselves. Time series momentum is awesome. 
Yeah, but I think the, the forward environment will make it more difficult for that. I don't know if I agree, uh, Arjun, because a um, time server one performs very well in periods with high inflation surprise, right? Because it's and, and time service momentum is a convexity characteristics, right? So it's basically like rolling a, a straddle over a long period of time, and with higher volatility going forward, if you have long, if you have long straddle, you harvest volatility, right? And so that's why time series momentum actually does very well in high volatile environments, but but it does even better when these high volatile environments produce high high trend, which I believe we will. So well, that's interesting because I, yeah, I so thought about it a little bit differently because I didn't I wouldn't think that the volatility has much trend going forward. I think volatility increases outright, but trend will be more difficult to capture. But that's still fine because time series momentum. If you if you if you look at the pro, look at the profile of the returns, it's it's pretty much the same as as being long a call and long a put, essentially straddle. So it, that's if you have um, like you're looking at your your strike right on the x-axis. So you actually need to end on a higher, either negative or lower level exactly. uh, on your strikes, right? If we're exactly. in kind of a rage bound but highly volatile environment, mm-hmm. then time series momentum then, exactly. Rent. Yeah, so so it depends on the the extreme the extremity of the news and where it ends up. Yeah, I entirely agree with that. Yeah, it's just that I have a different opinion because I because a because of the inflation dynamic of inflation surprises versus time series momentum, and 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 secondly, uh, time series momentum and was very good for situations where we see a grind persistent grind downs in the market, right? Because that's the most dangerous part for investors is a persistent grind down. Because right. if it's a sharp drawdown, you can buy a dip. Right. Yeah. If it's book grand right now, you try to buy a dip, you're gonna lose more money. Yeah. Right. And and so I think um that's the power of time to remove them. It's not as the entire portfolio, but it's a very, very good defensive strategy going forward. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess that's good on QAQT. Um, we want to do another bet. Um, yeah, what, what do you want to do? Um hmm. what's topical right now? Uh you want to do something asset class specific, rates, equities, commodities? Uh, I don't know. I actually can't think of anything that's right now, to be completely honest. That's that's a bet wise. I mean, I have an opinion on factors, but but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's something that's what about something that on. what what about something that neither of us really follow? Uh, what do we do? Oil? Yeah, sure. Okay. Let's look at the first futures. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me pull up to my side. Yeah. So CL1, right? Yeah. Okay, I don't um, have my Bloomberg up. Yeah, 84.28. I put it on the Bloomberg website. I put it on the Bloomberg website. Okay, yeah, you but can, yeah, you, hey, you, you see one commodity there. I, I have 84 as well, though. Yeah. Okay. Um, where do we think it goes by, let's say, the end of, or let's say mid February? February. Okay, I think, I, think, I, think, I think that's too close for something like oil. Yeah. Hmm. Equities we already did. What about VIX? VIX so let's see what the VIX level is. We should come up with these beforehand, eh? Hmm? We should come up with these beforehand. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll we, talk- don't have to bet. we don't have to do a bet each time and that ends on next time, right? No, you don't want to do, do that. We can do a longer well. It's, it's free, well, we can do a longer term bet. I mean, my point is the deadline doesn't have to be by the next podcast. Yeah, true. Okay, because last time we did it by the next one because it, it was just year end, right? So it's simple. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, hmm, I do I'll like say the big, big one actually. Big, next one, yeah, uh, will be a fair level, but let's do that. Let's see. So, uh, 20, fair level, 25. 25 is too high. Yeah, I, I think 20 is a good level. Yeah, above, below for you. Um, I'll take, are we looking at close or can we do average? Average. Average over a long, so, so let's say by June. Uh, I'll take the above. Well, shit, that's what I was going to take too. Okay, so let's <laughs> reprice the strike then. Yeah. Um, 22 and a half. Would you take that? I'll take below 22 and a half. Okay, I'll, I'll take above 22 and a half. Okay, so, so average from, say, the, 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 the year-to-date average as of, uh, June, as of June 1st. As of or June, June 30th. 1st. June 3rd and June 30th, it doesn't matter. Let's do June 1st, a little bit quicker. And I think that's still enough yeah. of a, yeah. a long time frame. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I, I'm going to need some big drawdowns to, to help me here. <laughs> we might get it. We, we actually might. Uh, tech has been performing very poorly. So the tech underperformance is going to help you because it's going to drag the entire index down with it. And, and that's actually one of the things that, that I need to mentally still start thinking about. It's like, it's, I, I constantly underestimate just how much of an impact tech has on the overall index level. Constantly yeah. underestimate it. For sure. For sure. But I, like, I, I saw there. a chart where they clustered the returns mm-hmm. um, versus the weighting of the index. And it's like the top five weighters are just huge. Like they're mm-hmm. all the returns of the index mm-hmm. for 2021. Yeah. Yeah. For me, for me, like I, I mostly think in terms of for fact investing. So, that, so it's, it's really easy to underestimate the index. The, well, the, it, the, yeah. Like neutral weighting. Yeah, factors neutral weighting. That that that's why I underestimate index level, right? Ah, right, right, right. Because, because I'm used to it being equal neutral weighted when I when I think, and clearly index is not. And speaking of index, next time we can talk about an interesting topic, uh, called um, what what's it called? It's called index reconstitution arbitrage. So basically, what happens is that when an index when the name gets removed or added from the index, mm-hmm. it's an interesting way to arbitrage that. Oh, really? um, that that very, that people well not a direct arbitrage and that it doesn't work hundred percent of the time. People it's one of those arbitrages that people call arbitrage, but it's not actually, actually an arbitrage. It's not hundred yeah. percent. Well, there's no such thing as real arb anymore, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, so we can talk about industry constitutional arbitrage, which is something that's right quite un- unintuitive that right. people don't think about. So mm-hmm. I'll leave off with this. So let, let's say you have a okay. Actually, Tesla example is a good example. So when Tesla got added, um. They did in a really stupid way, by the way. Yeah, and I think another company got removed. I'm trying to find the company got removed. Give me a second. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that was crazy. They did that all in one day, and I think the waiter waiting was higher than what the market. Well, I mean, I mean, it's 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 supposed to be done in one day. I think Tesla was just such a volatile name that so they surveyed market participants, right? 
Yeah. So 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 what's this company called? AIV. AIV. Never heard of it. Uh, apartment investment management. So this is this is uh, REIT called apartment. Uh, so the environment investment management. Okay. That uh that got removed from S P five hundred. Uh huh. When Tesla got added. It's not right. a REIT, it's like a REIT management company, not the REIT okay. itself. Okay. Um, so, so let's say, let's say you know that Tesla's going to get added and AIV is going to get removed. Right. What were you long? What were you short? Long Tesla, short AIV. No, you don't. And I'll talk about why next time. Okay. That's interesting. <laughs> I guess that's a, that's a good point to leave it off on. Yeah. All right, man. It's been good. Yeah, it's been great. So we will do this again. Yeah, we we'll do this again when we have things to talk about again. And, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, then, and then just created something to talk about in case yeah, for sure. we do not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you, Arjun. See ya.